Lori, his bride of 38 years, can't say I love her as well, but I am actually married to another Lori, so. And his five children and their spouses and the joy and rejoicing he has in 11 grandchildren. The presentation will speak for itself and he hopes that Jamie will feel it, honors her eternal companion, Matt Brown. Thank, Thank you. <clears throat> it's a delight to be here today and to speak in honor of Brother Brown. Although the terms provocation and rest are extremely important metaphors in latter-day scripture, I feel they have not been adequately reviewed in their context of priesthood-administered ordinances. The purpose of this presentation is to provide the key elements of my paper, which at the heart of it analyzes the usage of rest given in Doctrine and Covenants 84, 23 to 25 against its seemingly original Numbers 14 setting, the watershed event near the first anniversary of Israel's covenant to obey the law as seared on their souls at Sinai. What is the key to such a harmony? The heart of Joseph Smith's ministry, as consistently taught by him from beginning to end, hearkens to a principle of such importance to him personally that by the visions and blessings and glories of God to him, compelled him to codify in temple ordinances the possibilities and the expectations that were unlike those of the tabernacle and the subsequent temple of the Mosaic dispensation. His teachings on this subject harmonize at a higher level the overarching message of Moses' five books. I can only give here in outline form my observations that Moses' own endowment experiences as were revealed to and interpreted by Joseph Smith, created in Moses' heart an insatiable desire for him to extend to his family as well as for freed Israel all the blessings he had only recently received for himself. The first generation was unprepared. As we will see soon, the, their failures and trials of faith, the Lord occasion for them caused their expectations for the next 39 years to come crashing down after what I term the day of provocation. Like good and evil, the inextricably intertwined concepts of rest and provocation produced a tension-creating pedal note of the one song sung in harmony across the five books of Moses and memorialized in the Mosaic Tabernacle and Temple. Today is precisely the 180th anniversary of a glorious temple priesthood text revealed by the Lord to the prophet Joseph Smith. It speaks directly on the topic of today's conference the temple on Mount Zion. So in this homage to the life, enthusiasm, and love of all things temple that Matthew B. Brown embodied, of one who has written so wonderfully about the temple on Mount Zion and Jerusalem of the past, I would like to speak in his honor in reference to a brief passage of the temple treatise of the future temple on Mount Zion in the New Jerusalem, the pattern of which, the principles of which, the promises of which, and the powers of which will perfectly parallel the future millennial temple on Mount Zion in Old Jerusalem. We rarely read these passages in the manner I would like to do today. This treatise on temple priesthood administered ordinances 
begins as follows. Verily, this is the word of the Lord, that the city New Jerusalem shall be built by the gathering of the saints, beginning at this place, even the place of the temple, which temple shall be built unto the Lord, and a cloud shall rest upon it, which cloud shall be even the glory of the Lord, which shall fill the house. For the sons of Moses and also the sons of Aaron shall offer an acceptable offering and sacrifice in the house of the Lord. And the sons of Moses and of Aaron shall be filled with the glory of the Lord upon Mount Zion in the Lord's house. Please note that in the text I read, I passed over 25 verses from the Lord's revelation. Those 25 verses comprise a passage which is the longest parenthetical given by the Lord in all of our scripture. It is within that parenthetical that we are specifically informed in this temple treatise of one important key divine purpose of sacred space, a purpose that was inherent in such settings consistently from the time of Adam down to the time of Moses, which structurally set apart Mosaic dispensation temple structures in a manner that differs from temples before and after that dispensation. The temple structures of the Mosaic dispensation not only deny to the non-priesthood bearing 11 tribes of Israel this blessing, but even to all three levels of priesthood bearing orders of Levi and Aaron. That is the blessing of coming into the literal presence of the Lord. The temple was so structured that notwithstanding all Israel, whether male or female, might enter into higher key covenants administered by this priesthood, neither patron nor priest was granted admission into the presence of the Lord by means of these ordinances. Only by the proxy of incense ignited by red-hot burning coals were they permitted the privilege of their deepest desires to be offered to God through the Garden of Eden Vale, when their personal part of the incense cloud was wafted near the presence of God. Non-priesthood patrons were two veils away. The sons of Aaron, pictured by those standing behind Aaron and Moses, were one veil away. And the son of Aaron, but one day a year, could enter the Holy of Holies, knowing that when admitted into the presence of God, he would not see the face of God the Father and live. This coming Tuesday and Wednesday, our brothers and sisters of the remnant of the tribe of Judah, if they had a temple today, would memorialize and witness in the sacred robes of the holy Aaronic priesthood these very same truths and ceremonies in their Yom Kippur services during their Day of Atonement. We are in the midst of their Rosh Hashanah Holy Days that lead to Yom Kippur, the highest moment not only of the new year, but of the whole year. To our fellow Israelites, we respect, respectfully greet, greet them by repeating the highly appropriate words of King Benjamin when he blessed by benediction an ancient Israel assembly at a temple on this continent and concluded a marvelous sermon with this exhortation. Even it could be called a charge. Quote, I would that ye should be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works, that the Lord God omnipotent may seal you his. 
that you may be brought to heaven, that you may have everlasting salvation through eternal life, through the wisdom and power and justice and mercy of him who created all things in heaven and on earth, who is God above all. Now let's continue our reading of the Lord's Temple Treatise. What comes now is pointed, yet poignant. The Lord begins elucidating ancient temple history during Moses' day with verse 18. And the Lord confirmed a priesthood also upon Aaron and his seed throughout all their generations, being memorialized in this illustration at its very moment of conception, which priesthood also continueth and abideth forever with the priesthood which is after the holiest order of God. But the greater priesthood administered the gospel and holdeth the key of the mysteries of the kingdom, even the key of the knowledge of God. Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. And without the ordinances thereof and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. For without this, that is, the power of godliness that flows through ordinances administered by proper priesthood authority once a new dispensation has been established. For without this power of godliness, no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live. We now come to the heart of this glorious parenthetical within this tremendous temple treatise. Now this Moses plainly taught to the children of Israel in the wilderness and sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. But they hardened their hearts and could not endure his presence. Therefore the Lord in his wrath, for his anger was kindled against them, swore that they should not enter into his rest while in the wilderness, which rest is the fullness of his glory. Therefore he took Moses out of their midst and the holy priesthood also. The Lord, going well beyond interpretations normally made of the overarching common purposes of the texts of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, gives us what was truly in Moses' heart as he drew as many as would come out of Egyptian bondage unto the hill of the Mount Sinai Temple, where Moses only months before first conversed with the Lord at the burning bush and then a short while later by an ascension experience conduct, conducted by the spirit that whisked Moses away to an unnamed mount, and there he came fully into the presence of the Lord for the first time, and the book of Genesis was bestowed upon him. Thus, when he immediately afterward went to Egypt to rescue lost Israel, he was now endowed with absolute knowledge, not just tradition, about the history of the chosen seed. As the prophet Joseph Smith taught seven years later, Moses was fired within his own soul with a burning desire to have Israel meet with God just as he had met with God. He went to Egypt to bring them back to be taught from on high from Elohim and Jehovah, just as Moses had been before, when he went to e before he went to Egypt. So the question is, when was God's wrath so pronounced that he unalterably announced that none of that generation who came out of captivity from Egypt would ever rest? 
What event, what trial came their way that sealed that generation's fate, not just for one year, but for a generation to come? What could possibly have happened that Israel would be told, ye cannot enter into my rest while in the wilderness? Well, that's a pretty small picture. It, uh, <laughs> I guess that's the transfer act that occurs during PC to Macintosh. <laughs> well, I will describe it. it it's, uh, it's a wonderful uh, map of the Sinai Peninsula, and you are able to see the, uh, the, the path that uh, Israel took when they left uh, Egypt and went to various stops along the way where provocations occurred and uh, all the way till the, of a moment that I'm about to be talking about. And whether that comes up or not, I hope you were able to visualize that by the word picture I just gave you. Numbers chapters 13 and 14 present to us the, the most bitter solemn assembly that Israel had since they came into the wilderness. The Lord had sent 12 representatives of the house of Israel, one for each tribe, to perform a reconnaissance of the land the Lord had led them to and was willing for them to enter into and find the peace and prosperity that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph over 400 years before were forced to abandon. Seventy of Abraham's literal seed entered Egypt. Now, 400 years later, the population of Abraham's seed was more than 120 times a sky full of stars who were on the verge of possessing the land. Truly even then the promise of the Lord to Abraham was completely fulfilled that through his one son Isaac, generations in multiples of times greater than stars of the night sky would be born. Though knowing such a prophecy, the twelve returned with glowing reports of the riches and beauty of the land, but ten of the twelve shaded their reports to the negative. So they took counsel from their own fears and forgot the promises of the Lord that he would, by a stretched out hand, give unto them the land promised to their fathers. They did not lay hold on the promise that God would lead them to victory over all the inhabitants of the land who had, in the interim, ripened in iniquity. Their pessimism infected the entire host of Israel and camped around the tabernacle. And at this point, I had another one coming up. But uh, I think it's not going to show up. Um, <clears throat> they did, let's see. The 14th chapter of Numbers then reports the dreadful resorts the results. Here is the account. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. The following morning, and all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God that we had died in the, this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey. Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And 
they said one to another, Let us us make a captain, and let us return into Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel, and Joshua and Caleb, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, Rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for the Lord is with us. Fear them not, but all the congregation bade, stone them with stones. Over 600,000 men of Israel surrounded Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua, and were willing to stone them to death, while they helplessly stood next to the center place, the visible sign of their hope of redemption, the tabernacle of the congregation, that w- that which would eventually be transferred into the permanent temple structure on Mount Zion. At this very moment of alarm and rebellion, the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And you're seeing a wonderful drawing of, uh, of the way the the various tribes of Israel were positioned in camps around the very center where the tabernacle was the center place. You who are familiar with the temple on Mount Zion at the New Jerusalem uh, architectural plans that Joseph Smith produced has the 24 temple complex, half Aaronic, half Melchizedek, that would be there in the New Jerusalem in in the later day. When the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel, that was an interdiction on the part of the Lord to save these wonderful individuals. This was the normal signal seen over 400 times since leaving Egypt, but this time it was God's protection for his servants. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have shewed among them, I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee, Moses, a greater nation and mightier than they. But meek Moses, priest-like yet again, said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. For they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by by daytime in a pillar of a cloud and in a pillar of fire by night. Pardon, I beseech thee, the the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, 
Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. And Moses told these sayings unto all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. It was too late for repentance. The starkness of this woe pronounced by God at this time makes this the day of provocation, which for time's sake I didn't show you Jacob's statement and Alma's statement. So magnificent as spoken of earlier. Be remembered by them forever. The 95th Psalm recited and sung from time to time reminded Israel of their failure then. When the kings of Israel and Judah in after centuries brought upon the people death and destruction, provoking the Lord was the charge laid to them. Paul in his epistle to the Hebrews spoke of this provocation as not the example to follow if the Hebrews of his day wished to enter into the promised rest that the peace and mercy and love which Jesus Christ brought through his atonement and by the fullness of the gospel he introduced to yet another new generation in slavery to sin, fear, and death. Was it only this rebellion that brought this wrath? Was what were these ten times? The Talmud provides a list of ten events, but not all rabbis are agreed, including some taking the view that the term ten in ten times can simply mean many times. And though when looking at the situation from an absolute count of provocations, I favor such a view, but I do have my own modified list of ten provocations. And we can't see it, huh? Well, the, the list was simply the places at which these provocations occurred over the course of the time. But my, my list, I list also in Goshen, their first provocation. I have the ones they had in the Talmud, but I choose to put some together that they separate. And one, the more important of them all, is the one that I'm going to speak about now. The Tal uh, <clears throat> Suffice it to say, no one event of the ten caused the final pronouncement. All events together brought the Lord's wrath to a head. But to me, the most critical offense was the rejection of the Lord committed at the Sinai temple site. It is the failure that Joseph Smith's tra translation of the Bible also identifies, and it is as uniquely described in our DNC 84 Temple Treatise text under consideration here. Normally, this failure is reduced to the worshiping of the golden calf while Moses was 40 days with the Lord on Sinai. I believe that sixth provocation began with a failure of faith and obedience marked by Israel's appearance at Mount Sinai in what was to be their day of endowment from on high. Three days they prepared for it, but on that day they withdrew themselves by their own free will and choice and fears. The key moment of the sixth failure is when the Lord offered Israel when they drew near to the foot of Mount Sinai 
and were invited up to the near to be near the presence of the Lord. And when the entire solemn assembly, not just the 600,000 men who were 20 and above, but also their wives and their children 19 and below, when all heard the voice of God speak the words of the Ten Commandments, not only with their own ears, but also with their hearts, and received them in their inmost parts. Yet what was Israel's reaction? And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. But Israel still chose to stand afar off. When Moses returned to the presence of the Lord for 40 days, while the sixth provocation was continuing to, continuing to be simultaneously unfolding, the Lord, knowing all things aforehand, then began the unfolding of the lesser pattern for a temple. He also made the appointment of Levi, even before the Levites passed their test. And he knew even before Moses exercised his own wrath, righteous wrath, when he saw the golden calf, for which he destroyed the first tablets, then and only then did the Lord reveal to Moses alone why and what he was doing in modifying the nature of the tabernacle and its ordinances as he intended to confine them to the, le the lesser priesthood order. And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two other tables of stone like unto the first, and I will write upon them, also the words of the law, according as they were written on the first, at the first on the tables which thou breakest. And here's the phrasing that comes from the Joseph Smith translation that I earlier uh, alerted you to, the, to this text. But it shall not be according to the first, for I will take away the priesthood out of their midst. Therefore my holy order and the ordinances thereof shall not go before them. For my presence shall not go up in their midst, lest I destroy them. But I will give unto them the law as at the first, but it shall be after the law of a carnal commandment. For I have sworn in my wrath that they shall not enter into my presence, into my rest, in the days of their pilgrimage. Much more is said in the formal paper. But let me conclude with this. Did this penalty for provoking the Lord only begin then? Has it ended now? God's perpetual presence with the host of Israel during their wanderings the next 40 years was despite episodes of provocation both before and after the day of provocation at Kaddish when they were just there on the perimeter of the land of promise, and they refused to enter in. But now, no one in Israel was formally invited to attain the face of the Lord. Errantly, it became tradition that none since Moses knew God face to face. But Joseph Smith taught, 
Isaiah and Ezekiel, in fact, all the prophets who received the keys and powers of the greater priesthood during the Mosaic dispensation did come into the presence of Jehovah because of their faith in him and in obedience to the law of Moses as they literally saw in vision the Christ-centered deeper meaning of its glorious ordinances. These ironic ordinances memorialized what happened at Sinai when Moses, by the authority of the keys conferred upon him by Jehovah, gathered Israel, those keys also included the privilege to bring them to meet with God, but not into the presence, except as they were prepared to receive such blessings. Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you, was true then as it is in the Olive Leaf Temple Treatise given to Joseph Smith just three months after the revelations, the revelation on which we are expounding today. If seen from this perspective, this is not simply a harmony of the Torah, it is a harmony of the Tanakh, the sum of Moses, the prophets, and the writings that constitute the Hebrew scriptures. We are living in the age of its prophesied fulfillment in the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem and in the temple on Mount Zion in the New Jerusalem, as testified to Joseph Smith during his training years and by the prophet from the earliest stages of his ministry. Joseph Smith's insights on the temple now begin to be explored and examined by even those not of our faith without overt prejudice nor invectives. I'm audacious enough to say that Joseph Smith is the greatest symbolist of the modern Aaron era, our brother Matthew, so sought to testify and did so with exuberant enthusiasm. This clap should be for him.